What we've seen so far in this letter to Colossae, that Paul's primary focus in this writing is how our identity in Christ dictates our behavior within the church. These two things are so essential, who Christ is and who we are in him. Um, But how we're seen outside is also important. He doesn't leave this out of the letter. Even though it's a few short verses, there's a lot we can glean from this. And I think we know this in the back of our minds, but how often are we aware of this as we go through our lives, that when we walk through this world, people are looking, what is this Christian going to do? How are they going to respond? You know, there's all these Christian stereotypes. People just walk around with smiles on their faces and their heads are in the clouds and, you know, they're, they're not any earthly good and all that, that kind of stuff, uh, which, is, which is sad. I mean, we should be joyful people, but we should be able to have a reasoned response for the hope that is in us. And so this morning, we're going to look at Paul's call for the church to be Christ's ambassadors outside of the four walls. His primary focus is what goes on inside the four walls, but outside the four walls, we represent Christ. And so what we say and what we do matters. Inside the church, we guard the doctrine, and we make sure that the false teachers do not come in and preach a false gospel. But outside the church, we guard our practice so that when the world sees us, they see what Christ has done in us. And so before we get started, just want to ask some questions to stir the pot. And these, these are real questions. Do you ever forget that you're a Christian? Do you ever just go through the motions and realize, I went a whole day and I didn't even think about Jesus. Never opened my Bible. That ever happened to anyone? Ever forget that you're a Christian? You ever just go through the motions and find yourself drifting with the stream of the culture? It's what everyone else is doing, it's what everyone else is watching, it's what everyone else is thinking. So I'm just going to do as I see everyone else do. Do your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, do they know that you're a Christian? Do they? Do you look different? Do you talk different? Or do you say the same things they do? Watch the same things they watch? Go to the same places they do? Are there any difference between you and people who don't know Christ? And these are real questions. Because myself included, we have to ask these these questions. I've been hanging out with a non-believer for the last three hours. And can anyone tell the difference between the two of us? And this is very different. Because in our culture, there's such a temptation to fit in. Because we can. We can turn it on, we can turn it off. But for many, like those in the persecuted church in China like those in predominant Muslim countries, like those in West Africa. If you follow Christ, it costs you everything. If you follow Christ, there is no partially being a Christian. That means your family will disown you, maybe try to kill you. means the government will will crack down on you. You may lose all of your earthly possessions. We are blessed to have freedom here. But it's also a disadvantage. We could follow Christ in theory and not lose a thing. But Jesus told us, if you are going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. What good is it if you gain the whole world, yet lose your soul? Those who are not willing to leave behind father and mother, if you love anyone, children more than me, you're not worthy of me. We have a hard enough time not just loving the things of the world more than Christ, let alone those that we hold most dear. So I want you to think about this morning. Think about your life, your speech. Examine your conduct as we walk through this this passage. Are you aware of what you say and do? Do you have in mind that I want people to see Christ and glorify Christ? Or do you want people to think well of you? And this is difficult when we walk through our worldly relationships. But I was reminded this, this week that sometimes these relationships are in our own home. And received a text this week. Say, how do I follow the Lord when no one else in my house does? This is even more difficult. Because when your husband or wife or children do not know the Lord, they're watching you closely. Parents, this is very key. Because they're going to associate your doctrine with your actions. How does a Christian respond? What does a Christian do in your life We're, our lives are under a microscope in the culture. 
but in our homes even more so. Do they practice what they preach? Do they preach at all? This is a real question because a lot of Christians think, I can just be a Christian and go through the motions, yet never say the name of Jesus. Never talk about the Lord who saved me. Never point people to the cross. Never address sin. And I will say you cannot. And so we're going to get at this this morning. But what is essential in this, this whole practice? Because if some of you are feeling overwhelmed right now, like, man, I, I fall short on every one of these. Join the club. This cannot happen without prayer. This must begin with and be driven by and consistently upheld by fervent prayer. That is why Paul begins with prayer. These two things go together. We do not have the strength within ourselves. This is why we continue in prayer. And if you want to have a faithful ministry outside the church, we must be faithful, fervent prayers within the church. I know many of us fall short in our prayers for godly growth in our lives and our intercessory prayers for godly growth in others. So if you would, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. This section, one of the great summary I, I read this week, Dick Lucas in his commentary, says this is a passage about speaking to God about people and speaking to people about God. So that's what we're going to talk about, prayer, speaking to God about people and witnessing, speaking to people about God. So where we are in the letter, we've, we've looked at the indicative section, everything that Paul teaches us about who Christ is and our identity in him. We're leaving, we're, end, we're closing the imperative section. These are all of the things that you do because of who you are in Christ. So these exhortations to the, to the church in general are coming to a close here. And before he finishes the letter next week, and we'll finish the letter next week, we're getting into these final set of exhortations. Here's how you act in the church, but here's how you act outside the church. And everything, everything that we're getting now is still coming out of verse 17 of chapter 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you are a God of all wisdom. You are a God of all truth. You are a God who is all-powerful and all-righteous and all-good within yourself. And you open your word to us, which is so wise and so profound. And in these few short verses, each one of us should feel challenged. Each one of us should look at this and say, I do not pray as I ought. I do not walk as I ought. I do not speak as I ought. Lord, I need your strength. Lord, I need you to teach me, to guide me. I need you to convict me. I need you to stir within me a desire to come before you consistently in prayer. A desire to walk in a way that is radically different than the world. A desire to speak differently that declares the excellencies of Christ that takes every compliment given to me for my actions and points it to its source, my Savior who has worked in me. Lord, I pray for our body this morning. I pray that uh, we'd be encouraged, that we'd be emboldened as we leave this building, as we go throughout the week, that there would not be a disconnect between our Sunday morning and our Monday through Saturday, that we would be consistent people who are your ambassadors seven days a week every waking hour we would not lose sight of who we are we would keep our minds on things above that we would live unto you that we would work for eternal reward and that we would find our joy in you our security in you no matter what the world says us, even if we are thrown in jail we will praise you we will glorify you because it is a light momentary affliction 
in the light of eternal weight of glory that we are promised in Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So beginning in chapter 2, excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer. So what I want us to remember, and we talked about this a lot in Deuteronomy, it's so easy to forget that we live our entire lives before God. There is not a moment, there is not a thought, there is not an action that God does not see. There is not a time when God does not hear you. And what Paul is telling us is that when you're united in Christ, the Son has died for you. The Son has brought you before the Father. Now you have access to the Father. Talk to Him. Continue steadfastly in prayer. We have a God who speaks. Our God spoke the world into existence. Our God took on flesh and He taught us how to speak to our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven speaks to us through His word. We should speak to Him continuously. So we're going to see three things about prayer this morning. One, uh, before I get to the, the, the list, prayer is not optional. And it is not accidental. You know, we don't just pray sometimes or maybe I just stumble into prayer, but it is a continuous thing. The first thing we're going to see, continue steadfastly. Persist in it. Be devoted to it. It should be a regular rhythm of our lives. And, and it looks different for everyone. I have a lot of conversations with people. and say, it's, it's difficult for me to pray. I'll be honest with you. It's diff- I, 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 I admire you who can sit down for 30, 40 minutes and just pray. I have a hard time doing that. My conversations with God are happening throughout the day, though. I try to think in, in Scripture when things come up and when thoughts come into my head, Lord, forgive me. And when I need to counsel someone, thank you for your, for your word and, and continually meditating on the things of the Lord and having this internal conversation with him throughout the day. It looks different for each of us, but the, the process is continual. There is not a day when we do not need to speak to our God. There's not a day when our God does not uphold us with his mighty right hand. And I'll give you a piece of advice. If you struggle to pray, every time you think about it, stop right where you are. I don't care if it's your desk at, at work, except if you're driving. Um, but you don't have to close your eyes and even take a, a few moments and, and pray then. I'll give you another piece of advice. When someone is going through something, don't be the Christian who's guilty of the platitude and say, I will pray for you and never get to it. Pray for them right then. If you're sitting in front of them, pray with them. If they call you or if they text you, say, I need prayer. I will pray with you. I will pray for you. And stop what you're doing and pray right then. And that helps to set this, this, this pattern of prayer as a continuous thing. It's not just relegated to first thing in the morning or last thing at night. And those things are, are good. But if you're communication with your, your spouse was first thing in the morning and last thing at night, or your communication with your children was limited to that, you'd have a very weak relationship. We have a continual open dialogue. We are invited into our God who has been communicating throughout eternity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And they've invited us into that conversation. So this is a thing that we should do continually. Second thing, be watchful. This is the same language that Jesus uses in Matthew 28, 42, where he says, Therefore, stay awake, be watchful, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. He uses this analogy a lot. But our prayers are to be like those night watchmen who are like, at any time the enemy could be coming. Or those good stewards who, at any time the master of the house could be coming home soon. Be sober-minded, be aware, be alert. Not just going through the motions, not just forgetting that you're a Christian, but knowing my Savior could come back any minute. What do I want him to find me doing? The Lord could put before me a situation at any time where I am stretched, where someone else is, is, is stretched. I want to be aware. I want to be ready to pray. When something happens, my first response is to go before the Lord. And when something great happens, my first response is to praise the Lord in it something difficult happens, my first response is to cry out before the Lord. We are engaged in our prayer life as if Christ could come back at any moment. But we're also engaged in our prayer life as if Christ, our mediator, listens to everything. That he intercedes for us. He lives to intercede for us. Our high priest is constantly listening. 
He never falls asleep. He's never off shift. And so we should not be either. We should be awake and sober-minded. Because the world can lull you to sleep. You can get stuck in the motions and you can go through the rhythms of, of life and forget, man, did I talk to my God today? Did I cry out to my Savior today? It's Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I can do nothing apart from Christ. It is his strength and his energy in which I toil. This is how much we need him in prayer. Third thing, thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to praise him for. And if we can be honest, are our, are our prayers more selfish than they are praiseworthy? Do we think more in our own prayers about what we're going through and all the ways that we're falling short and all the ways that life is not met up to our expectations? Or are we praising God for all that we have? Are we praising God for our health? Are we praising God for our freedom? Are we praising God for new life in Christ? Are we praising God for the work he's doing in my brother, for the work he's doing in my sister? Are we praising God for the way that he has grown me and, and, and he has saved me from, from so many things? We're praising God for who he is. One of my favorite parts of this book is this kind of threefold command in the middle of chapter 3, 15, 16, and 17. Remember, each one of them speaks to a different aspect, speaks to the, the heart, the mind, and the actions. Each one of them is to be responded with thanksgiving. Verse 15 of chapter 3, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You were called by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his peace that has set you free. It is his peace that passes understanding. Thank God for that peace. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is gold. God's word is riches unmeasured. Let it dwell in you richly. Use it for teaching and admonition in all wisdom. Use it to direct your singing, your psalms, your hymns, your spiritual songs, all according to God's word, because it is so rich. Do it with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches me. Thank you that it corrects me. Thank you that it directs me in worship. Thank you for your wisdom that you speak through your word. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just our hearts and our emotions, not just our thoughts, but our very actions. Every time you do something good, thank you, God, that you've put something good in me, that your spirit has put your righteousness in me, because apart from you, I would do nothing good. And do it in his name, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Lord. We should be grateful, thankful people. Our prayers should be full of thanksgiving. Or do our prayers sound more like Christmas list to Santa? I'd like this, and I'd like this. I want this, I want this, I want this. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to praise him for. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time. Paul teaches often about praying. And here, I want to get you, uh, there's, there's a little bit of a difference here. So many of our prayers tend to be situational. God, pray for this job or this person or this situation. Paul doesn't teach us to pray like that. He teaches us how to pray continually, watchfully, thankfully. But Paul puts so much more emphasis on our intercession, on our prayers for others at the same time. Pray for us. And Paul is the driving ministry force here, but Paul is never arrogant. Paul always brings in Timothy and Epaphras and all those. Pray for us, those who labor alongside me. At the same time, when you pray, pray for us as well. It's a good thing to pray for gospel effectiveness. This is what he asked for here. At the same time, pray for us that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Remember, Ephesians is our sister letter. He asked for something very similar in Ephesians 6, 18 through, 18 through 20. When he talks about the whole armor of God and, and everything that you were put on, he closes with, with prayer, and he tells you what that prayer looks like. Ephesians 6, verse 18. 
praying at all times in the Spirit. This is not some crazy trance-like state. This is praying in accordance with the Spirit of God, in consistency with the truth of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. Does that be awakeness here? With all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's a good thing to pray for the saints. And also for me that the word may be given to me in in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Such a parallel thing here. But Paul encourages them, pray at all times for all the saints. Pray for me too. Paul is invested in their ministry and lives, and he expects them to be invested in his life also. This is a reciprocal thing. And it's a good thing, it's a good practice to pray for those who invest in you. So I want to ask you this morning, who invests in you? Hopefully in this body someone is investing in you. Do you pray for them? Who are you praying for and why? What do you pray for for them? Lord, give them the strength to keep dealing with me. Lord, give them the, 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 the strength to keep their wise counsel to me and, and to others. Lord, give me the availability, ability to invest in others like I'm invested in. Who do you pray for and why? So I'm going to give you a challenge this week. I challenge you this week in your prayers. Pray every day. Pray many times a day. And pray for others more than you pray for yourself. But Paul has a very specific prayer here. And I love how Paul has a singularity of focus when he writes to the church. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. You notice he doesn't pray, he's, he's in jail. He doesn't pray for the doors of his jail cell to be open. He prays for a gospel opportunity. This is what he longs for. He longs to see God's word do what it does. He knows that it is living and active. He knows that it will not come back void. He prays for that, that you may open doors. Because the reality is, is that doors are closed by the world in dead hearts. And it is only by the power of God and God's word working that, that, that those doors are open. And this is what Paul prays for. This is something that blew my mind when I first heard it. Um, one of my mentors, one of my professors, we spending time talking about evangelism. And all of us are thinking about, you know, the right way to approach evangelism, the right words to say. So he challenged us about how much, how much does our prayer play into evangelism? And how often prayer is the conduit which, through which the Lord works in evangelism. How long my family prayed for me. How many of us in here are praying for lost family members? Prayer is evangelism. Because it is by God's power It is selfish and arrogant for us to think that evangelism is only me stringing a a proper sentence together, even if I can't do one right now. Evangelism is going before our God, the only one who can open doors, the only one who can change hearts, and petitioning for those who are lost. Prayer is so effective. It is God wants us to come before him. God loves his people. He answers the prayers of, of his people. So often we trust our own words and our own abilities. But we have to notice here what Paul says. He's not praying just that doors may be open, but that God may open doors. It is by God's power that God's word is effective, and we are powerless without God's word and without God opening the doors to bring fruit in that. That's why prayer is so essential. Before evangelism, during evangelism, after evangelism, over time, be consistent in it. And he says that in order that he may declare the mystery of Christ. Remember this mystery. We spent a lot of time on it at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. What is this mystery? It is Christ in you. What is this mystery? It is Christ. The mystery that God took on flesh, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, that he took on flesh so that he might die and, and raise to new life, that you might be raised to new life with him, that you might be circumcised from the world, cut off, that you might be baptized, that you might die and raise to new life in him. That mystery is that that God 
who took on flesh, who died for you, resides in you, who unites himself with you. This is what Paul proclaims. He is in the belly of the beast right now. He is in jail under Roman guard. This wicked, pagan, hedonistic culture. He's not praying for Caesar to be overthrown. He's not praying for the world system to change. He is praying for the mystery of Christ to be opened in their minds, for God to transform their hearts. This is what the world needs. This is what Paul knew that they needed. Paul struggles for the gospel to take root in Rome, throughout the Roman Empire, as he did for those in Colossae. Remember, he, he talked about this. I, I toil for this. I struggle in this. I struggle for you that you may understand this mystery and you may stand firm in it. It is the only solid ground on which we can stand. This is Paul's struggle. This is Paul's prayer from a jail cell. I declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Paul speaks a lot about his imprisonment and how effective that can be. Just the witness you know, you think about a witness to outsiders. There is no greater witness when you are in jail singing praise psalms to God. There is no greater witness when you glorify God and don't run away when you have the opportunity to escape. A few of those examples want you to see Paul's mindset in prison and how he can be an example to the world around us. If Paul can minister in a jail cell, we can minister in freedom in our daily lives. Look at Philippians 1, 12 through 13. He's in jail here. We're not sure if it's the same time where he wrote Colossians or if it's later, um, but before he's waiting his execution. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, talking about him being in prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. If there are no other words said about you, that was written on your tombstone in prison for Christ. Consider yourself blessed. He says also in, in 2 Timothy, this is his final time in jail, awaiting execution. Look what he says in 2 Timothy. Uh, our men spent a lot of time on this uh, in our, our uh, men's trip. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Don't forget the gospel here. The offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. One of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. But the word of God is not bound. I may be bound, but these chains have nothing to do with the message that comes out of my mouth. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's singular mission, the lost sheep may come home. Those who belong to Christ may hear the message and they may have freedom in him, even if Paul never lives a free day, another free day in his life. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. This consistency here that we're talking about this morning, how do we live? Is our identity in Christ consistent every day of our lives? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Even in our weakness, we rely on his strength. This last line here is important. For he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? That means if Christ is truly in you, he is speaking, he reigns in your heart, he cannot deny himself. You cannot deny who you are. You can fight against it. You can, in your weakness, try to run from it. But if he reigns, let him reign. Those who are Christian when everything's going well and then run when it, gets, when it gets difficult and deny him. They went out from him because they were never of him. Last one, the end of Acts. Acts closes in chapter 28. The last few verses of the book of Acts, Luke writing about Paul, Luke lived with, with Paul, ministered with Paul, traveled with, with Paul, talks about his final hours or his final years in Rome. Look at what Luke says about the use of Paul's time. Paul was no slacker even in jail. 
he lived there. So um, in Acts 28, starting in verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. So he was on house arrest, paying for it. And welcome all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. For two years at his own expense. And this letter and many other letters are the fruits of his labor, co-laborers writing alongside him and sending these messages out to the churches. We are reaping the rewards of Paul's ministry done in prison. So, uh, made me think about our brother Wang Yi, who Deshaun mentioned earlier. I had to think about what I'm going to say because he took most of my details that I was going to say. Um, but, you know, in our supportive pathway learning over the past couple years, and in our prayers for the underground church, or the official term is the unsanctioned church of China, and think about those who everything is at stake to wear the name of Christ. How they act in front of outsiders could literally throw them in jail. He's now facing nine years. He's been in jail for a year, awaiting trial. Now he's facing nine years, and he's not getting off early for good behavior. He is a literal enemy of the state. As Deshaun said earlier, uh, his official charge is a version of state power and a legal business operation. And that illegal business operation is just printing, not even selling, not for profit, printing Christian, unsanctioned Christian materials, tracts, Bibles, hymnals, nine years in prison. All of his assets seized. He had very little worldly possessions. His wife is still in hiding. The government does not know where, where she is. Many of his members are still in, in hiding. The church is dispersed, yet the gospel is still going out. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from him I want to share with you, because he wrote a statement knowing that this would happen, knowing that if he continued to stand in opposition to the government, that he would potentially end up in jail. So he wants to speak about the reason why he is, he is standing in civil disobedience. It's not just disobedience for disobedience sake. This is what he says. I firmly believe that Christ has called me to carry out this faithful disobedience through a life of service under this regime that opposes the gospel and persecutes the church. This is the means by which I preach the gospel, and it is the mystery of the gospel which I preach. If, you're, if you know that you'll potentially get arrested, are you going to write words like that? My only concern is that I proclaim the mysteries of Christ. My only concern is that the church is persecuted. And how can I be silent? He is one very public example, but there are many, many more. I was looking at just all the examples of Christians who've lost their lives in the past couple weeks. Muslims think it's extra entertaining to execute Christians on, on Christmas. This is a very real reality. We thank God for the freedom we have, but realize it could be taken at any moment. Will we stand like Wang Yi? Will we stand like other faithful brothers and sisters throughout history? Or will we just melt into the stream of the culture? Uh, one last verse I want to share about imprison, imprisonment is a command at the end of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13.3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. What does this mean? This means that if my brothers and sisters are in prison for the gospel, I feel for them. I have compassion for them. I pray as if I was in there with them. We are united in Christ. We are part of the same body. If someone is oppressed or afflicted for the gospel, our heart breaks because we have that same identity. We are united to the same Savior. We are united to one another. This is what's at stake here. This is what Paul is, is getting at when he encourages the churches. This is who you are in Christ. This is what Christ has called you to. This is how you are united to one another. And sometimes it's easier to look more like the world than it does to look like Christ, to feel sorry for the world than to look to our brothers and sisters who are being afflicted. So let's continue 
in, in Colossians, and I like that his time in prison is just a side note. Never concerned for himself. This is not self-focused. This is not a pity party. He's not complaining. He's focused on the gospel. His continued prayer, that I may make it clear, this mystery that he, compl- that he declares, the, the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Make it clear. Uh, one of my favorite analogies for this, I heard from John MacArthur, and I'm going to use it until I die. It's, it's great. So John MacArthur talks about preaching, and he says, you are not the chef. You are the waiter. Your job is to get the food to the table and not trip over your own feet. So many people in our culture today think that they're the chef. They think that the gospel's not pretty enough. I've got to make it creative. I've got to put my own stuff in here. Look at everything I've done. Look at this, this whole scheme that I've put together. I'm the chef. I'm in the kitchen. I'm trying to cook this up. We are not chefs. Our God has created the greatest feast the world will ever see. Our only job as, as waiters is just to try to describe what our chef has done, get it to the table, and present it to those, and hopefully they respond, and hopefully they eat. Paul's concern here is that I, that I make it clear, not that I make it special, not that I'm a great communicator, not that thousands come to see me, but that I make Christ clear, that his work would be done, because this is what I ought to do. This is what you ought to do. This ought to be our desire, that the gospel is clear. This is why we spend so much time talking about the gospel. This is why we, we encourage you all to be able to articulate the gospel and want to teach you God's word. Every one of us ought to be able to do this, even at a very basic level, be able to make it clear who is Christ and what has he done and what does it mean for the person that you are speaking with. Paul's goal I want to make him known. I want to declare the mysteries of Christ. I want to make it clear. And how do we do that? We live before God and we live before man. So as we live before man, here's how we do that. In our conduct and in our speech. First, in our conduct. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. When you think of the word walking, it is not standing still. There is no standing still for the believer. We live our lives before God, but we live our lives in front of man. We live our entire lives before God, but all of our actions are done in front of man. So we walk in wisdom. We know when the world is, we know that the world is watching. It's so what we say matters. What we do matters. How we respond matters. We've talked about wisdom being knowledge applied and how we should be consistent in taking God's word and applying it faithfully to our lives. Walking in wisdom toward outsiders. And like I said earlier, this is the first time outsiders are brought up. The rest of this letter, if you think about it, all of Scripture is written to the people of God. There is no Scripture that is written to outsiders. Not one. All the Old Testament written to the people of God. Jesus speaks to his disciples. All Luke writes to early church fathers. The apostles write to churches. This is God speaking to his people through, through his word. But we do have a responsibility as well. We are called to be out in the world. Jesus says, I'm not taking you from the world, but I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to proclaim my excellencies to the world. God's word is to strengthen and encourage us as we walk in front of outsiders. So in this short letter, just a few short chapters, he didn't spend a lot of time on outsiders, but we, we, we pay attention here. The priority is what happens in the church. But what happens in the church can't help but spill out. It doesn't remain in the church. It happens in the church. You, you nourish it and teach it and encourage it in the church, but it must spill out. So you make the best use of the time. The language here is literally redeem the time. This, this slavery image. Redeem the time. Just as you have been redeemed, just as the Lord has bought you out of slavery, buy your time out of slavery. We weren't just redeemed part of us. I'm going to be Christian over here, and, and the rest of my time is mine over here. Redeem the time, because all of you has been redeemed. Your mind, your heart, your thoughts, everything Christ has purchased. He has purchased all of you. And so you ought to think the same about your, your time, because there's always an opportunity to share the gospel. There's always an opportunity to declare the mysteries of Christ. Make use of the time. Because the time is short. Remember, be watchful. 
The master could return at any moment. Paul also tells us in Ephesians, the times are evil. This is why we need to redeem our time. Because the world around us is under the power of the prince of the air. And so we take the things that the world dedicates to pagans and to themselves, and we redeem our time, we redeem our actions, we redeem our work. We don't work the same way other people do. We don't speak the way other people do. Because we've been bought with a price. And so we ought to be in the process of buying those things back. So, uh, you know, before we finish this, this verse on, on conduct, I want to talk about the difference between um, watching our conduct and people-pleasing. This can be a very gray area sometimes. Because we want to walk in a way in which people notice that we're different. But what's our motivation? Is our, is our motivation that people notice us? Look how righteous I am. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't curse for a whole hour. That was, that was amazing. You know, look how, look, look how much I've changed. Look how much I've done. The difference between watching our conduct in front of outsiders and people-pleasing is that you don't want people to be pleased of you. You want people to be pleased of Christ. You want him to be pleased. You want him to be glorified in your, your actions. What is our motivation? And this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Why do I do what I do? Do I want people to like me? Do I want people to be pleased with me? Or do I want people to see what Christ has done in me? And no one can answer that but you. No one can answer why you do what, what, what you do. But every one of us, there is, not, there is no person in this room who is exempt from this, who has done something to please someone else, knows how fruitless that is. Knows how often we fall on our face and how often we are disappointed and how often we'll do everything. We'll bend over backwards and make sure people see how much we want to be accepted. And they will throw it back in our face. And they will disappoint us again and again. But if our conduct is so that Christ is declared, it's not personal when they reject him. If you do everything they can, they are are rejecting you. And the disappointment belongs directly on you. But if you are doing it for Christ, they are rejecting him. And your conscience is clear. So our conduct is important. Verse 5. So is our speech. We live in a communication-heavy world. We have more messages competing in our ears than ever before. There are very few precious moments in our lives when someone is not talking to us. If it's not the news, our phones... TV, our coworkers, we're constantly being bombarded. So what we say matters. How do we cut through the mess of noise that happens in the world? How we speak is key. And so he gives us essentially three things here. Let your speech always be gracious. Let it be seasoned with salt. And then that you know how to answer each person. First, gracious. What does it mean that your speech is gracious? One, that is gentle, patient, and it is out of respect. And we, we, we get this from 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, this, this great passage about how to answer those. And yes, we should be able to defend the hope that is within us. But we do it out of love. We do it out of graciousness and patience because we know that we used to have dead ears like they did. We used to not know the gospel we have been shown grace, so we show grace to others. So Peter says this in his first epistle, 1 Peter 3, uh, 15 through 16. First thing, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. How do I make sure I'm not people-pleasing? Honor Christ. Put, exalt him in your heart, not yourself. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of, for the hope that is in you. That's key, being able to give that answer. Many people skip over this next part. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That is what it means to have gracious speech. And what happens if they reject you? Like I said, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. If you want to be put to shame, keep trying to please people. If you seek to please Christ, they will be put to shame if they reject you. This is what's at stake here. Be gracious. But also, season with salt. What does that mean? Salt has two purposes. Salt, my favorite condiment, makes everything taste better, right? Salt makes things taste good. It's true. 
So that means we have a message that tastes good. Taste and see that I am good. Taste and see that I am the Lord. We can make it appealing. This is good stuff. When we brag about salty chicken wings and pizza and all these other things, we have a salty gospel in the best way possible. It is, it, it is flavorful. It is something good. So that means we can be winsome. We can be engaging. We can be appealing. We don't have to be dry and dull. One of my least favorite things is these boring Christian shows where everyone just speaks at the same tone, and it's so dry, and it's so dull. It's like, I, I don't want to hear that. We have a good gospel. We have a good God. Season it with salt. Spice it up a little bit while you're being gracious. Salt has a second function, preservation. Preservation keeps things pure, free from corruption. So our speech should be preserved as well and make sure that we're not speaking with, with, with corruption. What salt does is it pulls the moisture out of food to keep it from, or to, to get it to, to survive, but it stops corruption from getting in. Our speech cannot be seasoned with salt if it is corrupting. You can't speak about things that are worldly and corruptive in, in one breath and then speak about Christ in the next and wonder why it's not effective. The two must go in hand, hand in hand. Walking in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time as your conduct, our speech, always being gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may, you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. So that. This is the wisdom in what to say to whom. That answer to the hope earlier. Jesus challenged us to be as wise as serpents. Know what you need to say when, but as gentle as doves. Salty and gracious. And how you ought to answer. The same language Paul uses earlier. This is how I ought to proclaim it. This is what I should be doing. This is how you ought to answer. Graciousness and saltiness. So Paul wants clarity in his proclamation. And he wants accuracy in our explanation. So I want to close with this this thought. How do we know how to answer each person? And do do you know that? Do you know what answers to give? So when people ask you, why didn't you get drunk with us last night? Why don't you act this way? Why don't your, your, your kids play sports or whatever on, on, on Sundays? Why does, why does your family not go to the beach on Sunday with the rest of us? Why do you do this and not that? Do you know what answers to give? And I'll tell you that speech is necessary. Those who say that you can preach the gospel without saying the words, words it's a lie. Any Muslim, Mormon, or atheist can do a good deed and never say the name of Jesus Christ. What separates you from them are the words that you use. So how do you answer? How do you answer someone that says, well, why do you act differently? Wives, why do you submit to your husband? Husband, why do you put your wife before yourself? You're bigger than her. Boss her around. Guys don't say this literally, but they kind of insinuate it. Because my call is to love my wife like Christ loved the church. Wives, your call is to submit to your, your, your husband as a bride submits to Christ. It is the gospel that drives everything we do. Why didn't I get drunk last night? Because I would rather have Christ in control of, of my mind than some outside substance. Why didn't I respond this way? Why didn't I just lash out? You deserve to get justice. Why didn't you lash back out at this person? Because Christ has given grace to me. Christ has forgiven me, and so I can for- I could never forgive this person. How could you ever forgive? Because Christ forgave me. Every time the world asks you questions of why do you do what you do, the answer should be because of Christ. That way, if they look at you like you're, you're, you're crazy, they're not rejecting you. So I want to summarize as a conclusion here. In this passage, we're talking about speaking about God, speaking to God about people, interceding for others, speaking to people about God, and these two things go hand in hand. Our prayer life and our outside life, there is no disconnect between them. We talk to God freely about those who we, who, who, who we care for, that his word would take root, and we speak to people, people freely about God. And we do that prayerfully and diligently and consistently. But I want to close with just thinking about the balance that this takes, because I'm not saying that this is not difficult. 
So let's look at each of these aspects quickly and look at the, the balance there. I want to summarize the balance in each of these things that Paul talks about, but also the balance between conduct and speech. One, walk in wisdom. So when we walk, we don't live for people, but we live for people to see Christ. This is a tough balance for us. We don't live for people, but we live for people to see Christ. We must walk in front of people. We must act in front of people, not for ourselves, but so they see Christ in us. Walk in wisdom. When we think about wisdom, earlier on in the chapter, thinking about things above, all of our mind, our thoughts, our actions are saturated with Scripture. Wisdom, you show tact. You can be compelling, but you also show restraint. You can be gracious. And the balance there. This other phrase, best use of the time, redeem the time. We have, we have limited time, so we, we make our time count. There's a sense of urgency, but there's a sense of resting in God's sovereignty and knowing that he will remain faithful even if we can't be. So I, I think about here, we at the same time need to have the, the, the wisdom and the tact of old age with the boldness and energy of youth. Every one of us should strive for that. As we grow older, the wisdom is easier. The boldness and energy is, is harder. But that balance should always be struck in our lives. And when we speak, be gracious. Give them the grace that we've been given. But it doesn't mean be dull. It doesn't mean be a doormat. It doesn't mean be, be pushed around. Because we can be engaging. We can be salty. We can be compelling. And winsome, yet we protect our, our witness in that, being salt and light, being tastiness and truth. And I struggle every week to try to keep that balance within a sermon. And I want you to you know, think about as we go through our lives that my conduct should be in this way, my speech should be in this way, this difficult balance, is Christ being honored in everything I do? Am I walking with wisdom and outsiders? Is my speech gracious? Is it seasoned with salt? And do I know how to respond? That is important. Can I answer those who ask me questions? I'll give you the Sunday school answer. When they ask you questions, the answer is always Jesus. And it keeps it simple. But you need to know why the answer is Jesus. Why? What he has done to me matters. And it changes everything about me. And I want you to know him. Let's pray. Lord, we are a thankful people. Forgive us when we are selfish. Forgive us when we are thankless. We have so much to thank you for. We have so much to praise you for. We have so much to exalt you for. You are good and awesome and wonderful in all of your ways. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the peace he has put in our hearts. Thank you for his word that he has put in our hands so that we may put it in our minds. Thank you for the spirit who transforms our hearts and our actions. Thank you that we get to do things for Christ. Lord, I pray that you season our every word and deed, that it may be pleasing unto you, that we may be gracious, that we may compelling, be compelling, that we may be prepared to give an answer so that you may be glorified, that you may increase as we decrease. For your glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.